And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnell. This is the Ken Hudnell Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. And a city that has its own climate czar. I mean, how cool is that? We got somebody in El Paso, Texas going to control the weather. Well, today's February 15th, 46th day of the year. 319 days remain till the end of the year. And it's been an interesting date in history. The, um, before I forget it, um, where is it at? Unbelievable. I was asked um, what I knew about St. Valentine, the person after whom Valentine's Day is named. uh, His feast day is February 14th, Um, officially known as St. Valentine of Rome, a third century Roman saint widely celebrated February 14th and associated commonly with courtly love. Although not much about his life is reliably known, and rather not the stories involve two different saints by the same name, has also not been officially decided by the man God selected to rule over all things religious, the Pope. It's highly agreed that St. Valentine was martyred and buried on the Via Flaminia to the north of Rome. In 1969, the Catholic Church removed St. Valentine from the general Roman calendar because so little was known about him. But the Church still recognizes him as a saint, listing him in the February 14th spot of Roman uh, martyrology. The... uh, He was the former bishop of Terni, Narnia and Amelia. Uh, he was uh, arrested uh, on house arrest with Judge uh, Asterius. And uh, while discussing religion and faith with the judge, Valentine pledged the validity of Jesus. The judge immediately put Valentine and his faith to the test. He was presented with the judge's blind daughter and told her to restore his sight, or her sight, Succeeded, a judge vowed to do anything for Valentine. Placing his hands on her eyes, allegedly Valentine restored the child's vision. Judge Asterius was, of course, humbled and shocked and obeyed Valentine's request. Uh, Asterius broke all the idols around his house, fasted for three days, and became baptized, along with his family and the entire 44 members of his household. And then he freed all his Christ, uh, the Christian inmates. Now, St. Valentine was arrested later on for continuing to try to convert people to Christianity. Sent to Rome under the emperor Claudius Gothicus, or Claudius III. And according to uh, what is believed to be the first representation of St. Valentine, the Nuremberg Chronicles, St. Valentine was a Roman priest martyred during Claudius's reign. He was imprisoned for marrying Christian couples and aiding Christians being persecuted by Claudius in Rome. Both acts were considered very serious crimes. A relationship between the saint and the emperor began to grow until Valentine attempted to convince Claudius of Christianity. The the, uh, emperor became enraged and sentenced Valentine to death, commanding him to renounce his faith and be beaten with clubs and beheaded. Well, he refused to renounce his faith, um, and was executed outside the Flaminia one more time for a Minian gate, February 14th in the year 269. Uh, other tales about his life claim he was executed either in 269, 270, 273, or 280, or maybe in all the years. Other depictions of his arrest tell that he secretly married couples so husbands wouldn't have to go to war. But the variation of the legend of St. Valentine says he refused to sacrifice the pagan gods. He was imprisoned, and while in prison, he healed the judge's blind daughter. 
on the day of his execution, left the girl a note signed, you're a valentine. And so began the custom of giving valentines. Pope Julius I is said to build a church near Pontimoli in his memory, which for a long time gave name to the gate, now called uh, Porta del Popolo, formerly uh, Porta Valentini. Well, there have been, uh, of course, quite a number of different stories. And when you're talking about, um, you know, the church, things have a way of changing, depending on which way the wind blows. Well, there's a number of other things that happened on February 15th over the centuries. In 438, Roman Emperor Theodosius II published the law codex, Codex Theodosianus. Uh, 706, Byzantine Emperor Justinian II had his predecessors, Leontios and Tiberius III, publicly executed in the Hippodrome of Constantinople. Um, remember, the Byzantine Empire was actually the Eastern Roman Empire. The empire became so big, it had to be divided. Uh, in 1002, in an assembly of, at Pavia of Lombard uh, nobles, Ardoin of Arvira, was restored to his domains and crowned king of Italy. 1113, Pope Pascal II issued Pia Postulato Voluntatis, which recognized the Order of Hospitallers, which was another um, organization similar to the Knights Templars. Uh, 1214, during the Anglo-French War, in 1213 and 1214, an English invasion force led by John, King of England, lands at La Rochelle in France on this date. 1637, Ferdinand III becomes the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, at that point in time, it wasn't holy. It was probably, really wasn't Roman, and certainly it wasn't an empire anymore. 1690, Constantine Cantemir, Prince of Moldovia and the Holy Roman Empire, signed a secret treaty on Sibiu, stipulating Moldovia would support the actions led by the House of Habsburg against the Ottoman Empire. 1764, the city of St. Louis is established in Spanish Louisiana, though now it's in Missouri. Uh, 1798, the Roman Republic is proclaimed after Louis Alexander Berthier, a general of Napoleon, had invaded the city of Rome five days earlier. 1862, American Civil War. Confederates, commanded by Brigadier General John Floyd, attacked uh, General Grant's Union forces besieging Fort Donelson in Tennessee. Couldn't break the encirclement, and uh, the Confederates uh, manning the fort surrendered the next day. 1870, Stevens Institute of Technology is founded in New Jersey, offers the first Bachelor of Engineering degree to, in mechanical engineering. 1879, President uh, Rutherford B. Hayes signs a bill allowing female attorneys to argue cases before the Supreme Court of the United States. And it was on this date in 1898, battleship USS Maine explodes and sinks in Havana Harbor in Cuba. Kills uh, around 274 of the ships and roughly 354 crew. This disaster pushed the United States to declare war on Spain. We still to this day do not know why the ship exploded and sank. 1899, Tsar Nicholas II of Russia issues a declaration known as the February Manifesto, which reduces the autonomy of the Grand Duchy of Finland, beginning the first period of oppression. Uh, 1909, the Flores Theory of Fire in Acapulco, Mexico, kills 250. Um, 1925, on this date, the 1925 serum run to Nome. That's the second delivery of serum. Nome, Alaska, which was the predecessor to the Iditarod. Nineteen thirty-three, in Miami, Giuseppe Zangara attempts to assassinate uh, President-elect Franklin D. Roosevelt, but instead he missed and shot Chicago Mayor Anton Serbak, who dies of his wounds on March sixth. 1942, follow Singapore. 
following an assault by Japanese forces, British General Arthur Percival surrenders. About 80,000 Indian, UK, and Australian soldiers become prisoners of war. That's the largest surrender of British-led military personnel in history. 1944, the, the assault on Monte Cassino in Italy begins. Also on this date, the Narva Offensive begins. And in 1945, on this date, it was the third day of bombing in Dresden. 1946, ENIAC, the first electronic general-purpose computer, formerly dedicated to University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. 1949, Gerald Lancaster, Hardy, and Roland DeVoe begin excavations at Cave 1 in the Crumron Caves. Eventually, they'll discover the first seven Dead Sea Scrolls. 1952, King George VI of the UK is buried at St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle. 1954, Canada and the U.S. agree to construct a distant early warning line, a system of radar stations in the far north Arctic regions of Canada and Alaska. 1961, Sabina Flight 548 crashes in Belgium killed 73, including the entire U.S. figure skating team, along with several of their coaches and family members. The uh, 1971 the decimalization of the currencies of the U.K. and Ireland is completed on decimal day. 1972, sound recordings are granted U.S. federal copyright protection for the first time. Uh, also in 72, Jose Maria Velasco Ibera, serving as president of Ecuador for the fifth time, is overthrown by the military for the fourth time. 1982, the drilling rig Ocean Ranger sinks during a storm off the coast of Newfoundland. Kills 84 workers. 1989, Soviet-Afghan War. Soviet Union officially announces that all of its troops have left Afghanistan. Some running rapidly. 1991, the Visegrad Group, establishing a cooperation to move between, uh, toward a free market system, is signed by the leaders of Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and Poland. 1992, serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer is sentenced in Milwaukee to 15 terms of life in prison. 1992, Air Transport International Flight 805 crashes in Swanton, Ohio, near Toledo Express Airport. Kills all four people on board. 1996, at the Chaiqing Satellite Launch Center in China, a long March 3B rocket carrying an Intelsat 708 veers off course and crashes into a rural village after liftoff. Kills anywhere between 6 and 100 people, depending on who you talk to. 1996, the Embassy of the U.S. in Athens is attacked by an anti-tank rocket launched by the Revolutionary Organization of 17 November. 2001, the first draft of the uh, complete human genome is published in Nature magazine. 2003, protests against the Iraq War take place in over 600 cities worldwide. It's estimated that between 8 million and 30 million people participate, making this the third, making this the largest peace demonstration in history. 2010, two trains collide in the Holly train collision in Holly, Belgium, kills 19 and injures 171. 2012, 360 people die in a fire at a Honduran prison in the city of Kamuyagu. 2013, a <laughs> A meteor explodes over Russia, injures 1,500 people as the shockwave blows out windows and rocks buildings. Happened unexpectedly only hours before the expected closest ever approach of the larger and unrelated asteroid 2012 DA-14. And in 2021, 60 people drown and hundreds are missing after a boat sinks on the Congo River near the village of Longola, Ikoti, the dumb province in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Well, there's been a lot of other things that happened on this particular date in history. The um, And I talk about history because I firmly believe if you don't know about history, you're doomed to repeat it. And we got some of the dumbest people God ever created running the show. 
Well, we've been talking about um, strange uh, occurrences, such as legends that the planet was once bathed in fire, and that's why there's a lot of vitrified um, ruins around the planet. And maybe this bathing in fire happened more than once. So the vitrification might be the product of some nearly forgotten natural catastrophe. And of course, let us not forget a gigantic fireball, October 8th, 1881, or it could have been a meteor roared over the Midwest, caused a rash of disastrous fires in several states, including the famous Chicago Fire. I am always questioned whether Mrs. O'Leary's cow knocking over a lantern could have burned down Chicago. Now, thousands of people were killed in Illinois and Wisconsin, and vast areas were ravaged in flames that particular night. And a similar visitor could, from space could have caused the vitrifications. Vincent Gaddis, an author who wrote a book called Mysterious Fires and Lights, went into this in some detail. Now, another strange phenomenon could also be to blame. From time to time, overwhelming, overwhelming waves of heat of an unknown source are concentrated in specific areas. Figueroa of Portugal suffered one of these mysterious blasts of heat for two minutes on July 6, 1949. Temperature went from what was considered normal up to 158 degrees. Hundreds of people collapsed in the streets. Thousands of chickens and ducks killed over dead. And the Mondego River dried up suddenly in several places. Now... The followers of Agrist weren't about to accept such mundane explanations for the vitrification of Baalbek. A young astronomer named Carl Sagan presented a paper before the American Rocket Society November 15, 1962, in which he repeated Professor Agrist's speculation and urged that ancient myths and legends be re-examined for possible clues to an early visit by an extraterrestrial civilization. Other researchers uh, scoured the ancient records of India and found things such as the Mahabharataka, a document dating back more than 3,000 years, which described a blazing missile that hurled out of the sky into the midst of an attacking army, producing a radiance of smokeless fire that flattened chariots and ignited forests and boiled rivers and produced dark clouds of what they called death. Now, all this sounded uneasily like an atomic attack. In the Mosada Pavra, the ancient historical account, there's a vivid description of some kind of death-dealing ray that began as a small bright glow and grew into a shaft of brilliant light and actually consumed its target. This phenomenon was accompanied by violent winds and peals of thunder and cloudless skies and there were also earth tremors. Terrible rakshasas shaped like huge mounds attacked another Indian army from the sky and fired weapons winged with gold, thunderbolts, and hundreds of fiery wheels. Even in the Bible, we're told how the prophet Elijah was saved by balls of fire that wiped out a hundred soldiers and their captain, uh, captains. Go to the book of Kings, chapter 2, verse 1. Actually, it's King's second, I'm sorry. That would have been around 896 B.C. And there are innumerable stories of this type of, from all cultures, indicating that this, assuming you believe in the wings over the world, is armed with spectacularly advanced weapons and doesn't hesitate to use them against mortal men. So one cultist's uh, conclusion about the vitrified, vitrified forts as they were attacked by flying saucers that focused deadly heat rays on them and their occupants. But the entire desert between Damascus and Baghdad is littered with blackened rocks, 
thousands of square miles seem to be charred, not by the sun, but by some long-forgotten holocaust. Did some force lay waste to all of Mesopotamia? Or did some great natural disaster wipe out the civilization that once thrived there? I want to point out, if you look at the the records maintained by uh, Alexander the Great's um, historian. He was attacking one city that was built on an island. And the only way to the island was a causeway. And the causeway was so narrow that he couldn't get um, sufficient force concentrated in any one location to try to uh, defeat the forces in the, in the fort. And... Three shields came from the sky and assaulted the walls with red rays, and eventually they collapsed. UFOs with lasers, perhaps? Certainly it's a possibility. You know, there's a lot of other interesting... stories. 4,000 years ago, Great Britain was populated by a small group of people who were barely out of the Stone Age. They had a few primitive tools made of bones and they eked out a living with only the greatest of difficulty. Anthropologists estimate that there were probably about 300,000 of them. And they were undoubtedly divided into warring clans and factions and since uh, factionalism is a natural state of the human race. But somehow, Thousands of these people came together to spend many generations quarrying huge stones, some of them weigh as much as 30 tons, in the Priscilla Mountains of Wales and hauling them these enormous blocks 240 miles to Amesbury. And there they systematically arranged these stones in a circle, following measurements so precise they're able to construct a mathematically correct astronomical computer. And you can still see it today. It's called Stonehenge. Like the Great Pyramid, Stonehenge appears to have been a pointless and impossible exercise. Thousands of workers had to be fed and clothed and housed for generations as they labored on this profitless project. Top-flight administrative talent must have been necessary to plan and organize the work and supervise its execution. Architects had to design the monument with care before the first block of stone was chipped out of the hillside. And above all... We were asked by archaeologists to believe that these early primitive men and women had the motivation necessary to dedicate themselves to such an awesome task. We were also asked to believe that they pushed and hauled these monstrous stones up and down hills and across rivers and through forests and soupy bogs on sledges and using wooden rollers. And somehow they managed to stand these slabs on end lifted other stones on top of them, and built the whole thing so securely it lasts for over 4,000 years. Now, from a practical standpoint, the very idea is, I wouldn't be wrong in saying it was absurd. Now, in the book Stonehenge Decoded, astronomer Gerald Hawkins catalogs these absurdities and offers an educated estimate that the construction of Stonehenge required at least 1.5 million man days of physical labor. He calculates it took three centuries to build. That's ten generations because a generation lasts about 25 years. So ten generations of primitive people they were somehow convinced it was worthwhile to arrange a pile of stones in a circle on an English plain. You can't get ten generations of people to agree that the sun's going to come up tomorrow. Now, according to Hawkins, for generations, the work on Salisbury Plain must have absorbed most of the energies, physical, mental, and spiritual, and most of the material resources of a whole people. There are others, of course, who prefer to believe that the, the early Britons didn't build Stonehenge at all. To them, it's obviously the work of the Atlanteans or even the wondrous Space Brothers. Now, Stonehenge was the only existing megalithic monument of this type in Britain. Um, 
Hawkins' work might be a little bit more acceptable. Unfortunately, there are several hundred of these stone circles scattered about the British Isles. Many of them just as mysterious as Stonehenge. So we have to assume that all the Space Age Britons, excuse me, Stone Age Britons, were frantically engaged in monumental building for at least a thousand years. And we haven't had a civilization yet that's lasted several thousand years that we know of. So if the scientists have dated Stonehenge correctly, then its construction occurred around the same time the Minoan culture blossomed on distant Crete. Great Pyramid had already been built, or was in the final stages. So, and as far as we can tell, the Indians hadn't yet appeared in North and South America. On Lewis, the northernmost island of the Outer Hebrides, hundreds of miles north of Stonehenge, there's another circle of giant standing stones arranged in a circle. It's called Kalanish, and this ring consists of 13 blocks set around a large central stone. It's erected in a uh, desolate, hard-to-reach place. Again, posing the question, how and why did the early builders put it there? Now, since Kalanish is somewhat cruder than Stonehenge, Hawkins speculates that maybe it was built first, and the builders applied what they learned from that effort to the later construction on the Salisbury Plain. But the two sites are separated by a vast distance and an expanse of water. So in order for the theory to work, we need evidence that the early Britons were also great travelers and had a society developed enough so they could travel in large groups. Small wandering tribes couldn't meet these criteria. Astronomers and scientists have been measuring and studying these sites for centuries and General conclusion is that the stones were arranged in such a way that they deliberately are aligned with certain stars and phases of the moon to form a crude computer that acted as a calendar. You know, Hawkins fed his own conclusions into an, and calculations into a modern electronic computer and produced numerous charts and tables demonstrating the correlations. In essence, when a man stands in the center of the Stonehenge Circle, specific stars or the sun or the moon, appear directly over specific stones at specific times of the year in a manner which had to be planned by the builders. You didn't get something like that by coincidence. According to Hawkins, some 240 Stonehenge alignments translated into celestial declinations. For whatever reason, these Stonehenge builders built as they did their final completed erection was a marvel. As, in, as intricately aligned as an interlocking series of astronomical observing instruments, and yet architecturally perfectly simple in function, subtle and elaborate, in appearance stark, imposing, and awesome. Stonehenge was a thing of surpassing ingenuity of design, variety of usefulness and grandeur in concept and construction and eighth wonder of the world. Now, considering the enormous amount of effort that must have gone into uh, the construction, Stonehenge ranks as the costliest calendar in the world. Early investigators tried to explain Stonehenge as the work of the Romans, the Danes, because there are similar constructions in Denmark, and even the Druids, an esoteric priesthood that entered Britain from France in 500 B.C. Stonehenge has been around for at least a thousand years when the Druids arrived. But nevertheless, Druidism has become closely allied with Stonehenge. Even today, members of the most ancient order of Druids makes an annual pilgrimage to the site to perform their rites, which they claim date back to the days of Atlantis. Hawkins discovered that a significant cycle occurs every 18.6 years at Stonehenge. He calls it uh, midwinter moonrise, for the moon rises over one particular stone every 18.6 years. Then he points out, with some glee, a statement by the ancient historian Diodorus, who lived about uh, 50 B.C. The moon as viewed from this island appears to be but a little distance from the earth and to have on its prominences like those of the earth that are visible to the eye. The account's also given that the god visits the island every 19 years, a period in which the return of the stars to the very same place in the heavens is accomplished. 
So what god would visit the British Isles every 19 years? Could Stonehenge have been constructed to predict the appearance of some alien being? That might have given the ancient stonemasons a strong religious motive for constructing it. And whoever planned Stonehenge had to have a knowledge of mathematics and astronomy. Did the Stone Age Britons possess this knowledge? Or was the information passed along to them somehow? Were they following orders just as Moses followed the specifications given to him by Jehovah for the construction of a golden ark? The gods and demons of all cultures have always had a penchant for ordering men to build large, seemingly meaningless temples and tombs and artifacts. Soon after Gerald Hawkins published a summary of his findings in Nature in 1963, he became the center of controversy. Mathematicians and astronomers and archaeologists who had never even been near Stonehenge assaulted his thesis and dissected his uh, semantics. He did leave a number of unanswered questions because they still haven't been answered. 20 miles from Stonehenge is another ancient wonder. The Mammoth Mound at Silbury. This is a man-made mound of earth, 130 feet high, covering over five acres. And scientists estimate that it was constructed about 1800 B.C., which means that while thousands of early Britons were starting work on Stonehenge, other hundreds or thousands were pointlessly hauling uh, baskets of dirt to Silbury to build one of the largest mounds on earth. In 1848, a group of investigators burrowed a tunnel into it, going from the top to the bottom in hope of finding some clue as to why it was even constructed in the first place. All they discovered were some picks made from red, antler, uh, red deer antlers. Recently, these objects were given the carbon-14 test and are found uh, to date from around 800 B.C. And this is most upsetting to the theorists who uh, believe the mound was at least a thousand years older than that present time, a team of American and British archaeologists are digging new holes in the Silbury Mound, searching for new clues as to why somebody would have made that big mound of dirt. Now, man-made mounds of unknown origin and purpose, numbering the thousands all over the planet. In Ireland, they're called city or fairy mounds, and probably the homes of the little people. St. Patrick's is supposed to have stood on the Crowag Patrick, a mound in County Mayo, when he ordered the uh, snakes out of Ireland. Most of them went to uh, the U.S. Congress. Hundreds of these mounds are scattered throughout the United States, where they're popularly called the Indian mounds, even though the Indians don't even have legends to account for them. Some of the mounds in Ohio and Minnesota and uh, the Southwest are skillfully laid out in geometric patterns that can only be seen from the air. When viewed from above, they represent elephants and birds and snakes and other animals. Whoever laid these things out apparently intended them to be seen from the air. From the ground, they appear to be nothing more than symmetrical hills with flat tops. Aerial surveys of South America revealed elaborate ridged fields and earthworks, some covering uh, 50,000 acres and some as long as 1,000 miles. In at least five scattered locations, the ridge field at Lake Titicaca in the Andes covers 200,000 acres and is spread over 160 miles. These man-made ridges and mounds may have been part of a complex agriculture and irrigation system. Of course, that's just a guess. Other mounds and ridges of this sort are spread throughout Europe and Asia, and some stone chests found in thousands uh, in mounds in the Mississippi Valley are identical to chests dug up in mounds in Yorkshire, England. But most of the mounds have yielded little or nothing to patient diggers. Yet the presence of these mounds everywhere is an indication of a worldwide culture in prehistoric times that regarded mound building as an important activity. They've also found um, in some of the smaller mounds um, graves filled by giants, 8 to 12 feet tall, Six fingers, six toes. Some of them wearing very elaborate copper armor. We do know that mound building persisted as part of the burial rites of ancient people. Early historians such as Homer and Herodotus described these rites. Alexander the Great supposed to have spent a fortune to erect a huge mound over the grave of his friend uh, Hephaestion. 
Kings of ancient Scythia on the Black Sea were buried under mounds. Archaeologists assumed this mound-building practice led eventually to the development of the Egyptian pyramids. Desert sand is a poor mound-building material, so the Egyptians switched to stone. But how did mound-building spread to the Americas in the pre-Indian uh, epoch? Flying saucer cults uh, read great significance in the fact that many modern UFO sightings seem to congregate around the old Indian mounds. Strange lights bobbing and weaving and blinking in intelligent patterns periodically cavort above the mounds in the Ohio Mississippi valleys. Since UFOs have a tendency to appear in the same geographical location year after year, century after century, it is possible ancient people saw them too and erected the mounds for them. Some flying saucer writers have borrowed a page from Professor Agresti's Baalbek theory and suggested the flat-top mounds were intended as UFO airports. You know, if the great mounds are merely monuments to the dead, they were certainly costly. Even the modern bulldozers and steam shovels would take much time and money to construct a mound 130 feet high and 5 acres square, like the Silbury Mound. It's difficult to visualize tribes of prehistoric people engaging in this activity for months on or years. It's even more difficult to think than them... Uh, planting the mound so they represent specific symbols when seen from the air. Now, it's been established that while the early Britons were simultaneously erecting Stonehenge and piling dirt for the Silbury Mound, they were also carving giant figures on nearby hillsides. The figure of a great white horse is cut into the summit of a hill in the Berkshire Downs. At Cerny Abbas, a giant caveman is traced on a hillside, carries a club, and his male genitalia are prominently displayed which outraged the early Christians, of course. Similar figure, the long man at Wilmington was emasculated by early Christians. There are many others spotted from Australia to Africa to the United States, obviously meant to serve as landmarks for unknown pilots cruising the virgin skies. The tradition for making these landmarks uh, survived until at least 1,500 years ago, because that's the age of the famous Nazca lines found in the Peruvian desert. Nobody paid much attention to them until the early 1940s. Since then, they've become an important part of Atlantean and flying saucer lore. On the ground level, the Nazca lines are merely a jumble of paths made by brushing aside the stones and pebbles of the desert. There's not much rain or natural erosion in the area, so the lines remained intact for at least 700 years and possibly even for 1,500 years. Of course, estimates as their age certainly vary. Seen from the air, the clearances form uh, the outline of spiders and birds and fish and sorted monsters or unknown animals and numerous squares and rectangles, some larger than two football fields. Dr. Maria Ritchie, a German astronomer who lived in Nazca for 20 years, carefully charted all the lines by viewing them from on top of a high ladder. Daniel Cohen uh, talked about it in the Science Digest in May of 1970. He said, in spite of such devotion to her work, she is regarded by some scientists as a woman obsessed with a theory rather than a careful scientist. She's produced all sorts of correlations between the lines and the positions of the sun, the moon, and the stars. She postulates a gigantic desert calendar with which the ancient Peruvians could mark the passing of the years. Of course, her opponents argue that with so many lines and so many astronomical bodies with which to make alignments, it's possible to work up many correlations, but frankly, at the end of the day, they're all meaningless. The Inca Nazca people who created the lines were massacred in the wars that followed Francisco Pizarro's invasion of Peru in the 1500s. Inca civilization destroyed by Pizarro apparently came along centuries after the lines were laid out. An ancient uh, Inca road slashes across the desert, ruthlessly severing the lines. It seemed the Incas regarded the lines as insignificant. Nevertheless, hundreds of people must have worked for years, if not for generations, in planting these lines and scratching away the topsoil to, to make them clear. Nazca lines remain as another of early man's energetic but seemingly pointless enterprises. Easter Sunday, 1722, Dutch Admiral Jacob Rogovine landed on an island in the Pacific, uh, 2,200 miles from the coast of South America. 
First things he saw were hundreds of giant statues squatting near the waterline, staring out at the sea. There were huge, eyeless heads mounted on small stone bodies, and some were as high as 36 feet. Now, Admiral Rogovine had discovered not Atlantis, but Easter Island, a pitifully barren volcanic island with an area of 45 square miles with almost no trees, no wildlife except for hordes of bothersome insects, populated by cannibalistic tribes of Polynesian origin who had apparently migrated there centuries before. Current population is about 270, give or take, but at one time it was considerably larger. Intertribal wars and raids by early slave traders whittled the population down. The uh, Ahu statues were quarried for volcanic rock, some weigh as much as 30 tons. And since wood is practically non-existent on the island, the statues must have been hauled out of the quarries with ropes and sheer muscle power, dragged down to the beaches, and raised upright with more muscle power. Many of the monuments were topped with a hat of a pacayo, which made out of red rock. Some of these uh, pacayos weighed five tons themselves. How the natives raised these five-ton carvings to the tops of the erected statues is another puzzle that has never been solved. And like the builders of Stonehenge, Eastern Islanders had to accomplish their task with the crudest kind of tools. Each statue must have represented months or years of labor, and there are over 600 of these statues on the island. Statue building came to a built end for some reason, so abrupt the workers dropped their stone chisels on the spot. Their tools have been found in the quarry next to 200 unfinished statues, some of which measure 66 feet long. Now, various expeditions have visited Easter Island and tried to piece together the story of the Ahu builders, but the surviving natives had only the vaguest legends. During the tribal conflicts of the 18th and 19th century, many of the statues were overturned and destroyed rather contemptuously. Remnants of the island's culture were erased by the wars and slavers and the smallpox epidemic, missionaries who ordered the destruction of pagan artifacts. The uh, latter included ancient wooden tablets covered with an unknown form of writing. On a few samples of these tablets remained in scattered museums. Interestingly enough, the early missionaries took the position, it wasn't in the Bible, it was superfluous. No, I'm sorry, if it was in the Bible, it was superfluous. If it wasn't in the Bible, it was evil. Destroy it. So the history of entire civilizations went up in flames to make the early fanatic uh, missionaries happy. Scientists who concluded the Easter Islanders or Polynesians blithely overlooked the fact that megalithic structures are virtually unknown in Polynesia, and the Polynesians never developed a form of writing. One Easter Island legend stresses there wars were raged between a tribe with long-eared people and a tribe of short-eared people. Short ears won, presumably ate all the long ears. Maybe the long ears were the Ahu builders. Easter Island so isolated, the early settlers must have been marooned there and lacking wood for boat building, remained out of touch with the rest of the world for centuries while they developed their own peculiar culture. Now, they did have a complicated religion, no question about that, and it's possible that the statues were some part of it. The red hats could have some meaning, even the American Indians have legends and prophecies about gods with red hats. But there's also intriguing legends of red-haired beings in which distant, isolated places, as uh, at Borneo and the ancient gods of Europe and Asia, are often described as having red or blonde hair. And modern UFO contactees claim that the space people who ride around in flying saucers have long red or blonde hair. So it's not surprising that some cultures speculate that members of the Wings Over the World crew may have visited Easter Island and that the Ahu statues are tributes to them. Each statue symbolizing one appearance of a god. Scores of giant red-haired mummies have been found in a cave 22 miles from Lovelock, Nevada in the last um, 100 years or so. First ones discovered in 1912 were between 6 and a half and 7 feet tall. Artifacts found in the same cave had been dated by carbon-14 tests. Apparently, the cave had been occupied as far back as 5,000 years. Local Paiute Indians have legends about these giants describing them as being cannibalistic. In her book, Life Among the Paiutes, which she published in 1882, Sarah Wittemucka Hopkins wrote that uh, 
last of the red-haired giants were exterminated by the Paiutes in the 19th century. They'd dig large holes in our trails at night, she said, and our people would fall into these holes, and tribes would even eat their own dead. Yet they would even come and dig up our dead after they were buried and carry them off and eat them. Atlantis lore also described giant red-haired cannibals who behaved almost like uh, traditional vampires. Some authors have speculated that the red-haired giants invaded Easter Island from South America, and the cannibalistic rites of the Easter Islanders was inherited from them. There's now an American military base on Easter Island, and recently workmen and heavy equipment constructed in airfield were diverted to raise one of the uh, flattened stones. It took a heavy crane to do the job that uh, was once done by hundreds of dedicated natives engaged in another of early man's impressive but pointless uh, enterprises. Easter Island's been a favorite of National Geographic for years, and the cultists have had a field day inventing explanations for the mystery. But there are many other Pacific islands, even more remote and very rarely visited, which pose far more baffling questions. The city of uh, Atalanum on the southeastern shore of Ponape Island in the Micronesia is now in ruins. But it once could have housed two million people. Nobody knows who built it. Nobody knows when it was built. Some of the stone blocks in those ruins weigh 15 tons, and the stone used in the city is not from the island. Gigantic waterways or canals intersect the city, some of them large enough to float a battleship. So who built this enormous place? And how did they move these huge stone blocks across the Pacific to the island? And what happened to two million people that occupied this island at one time? 3,000 miles to the southeast of Panape Island, on the tiny Malden Island in the Lion Island chain, there are ruins of 40 stone temples whose architecture is identical to that of Matalanin. Basalt Road leads from these ruins straight into the Pacific Ocean. Islands uninhabited and covered with guano or bird droppings. But if you draw an imaginary line southwest from the um, Malden for 1,200 miles, you arrive at uh, Rotonga in the Cook Islands. Another ancient road of basalt rocks rises out of the ocean at that point. Innumerable other hard-to-reach islands scattered throughout the Pacific are dotted with enigmatic ruins, canals, and roadways from some long-lost and forgotten culture. They all seem to be interrelated, as if they were all once part of some great civilization. Be prohibitively expensive to organize a proper scientific expedition to visit and study all these far-flung ruins systematically. Besides, their existence doesn't fit in with any of the current uh, anthropological theories. Suppose some scientists should find they date back 10,000 years or more and are the remnants of some super-civilization from the past. Well, no matter how substantial his evidence might be, he would be... Uh, immediately crucified by his colleagues and drummed out of all the scientific societies. Obviously, Metalanum was built by cannibals with stone chisels, and these canals serve the religious rites of the water gods. Believers in the lost continents of Mu and Pan and Lemuria, which they all have been the same place, noisily embrace these tidbits as evidence that a once great landmass did exist in the Pacific at one time was populated with a highly advanced race while the Egyptians and Britons and Cretans were all fashioning stone axes. One cultist, traditionally, uh, one cultist tradition passed along by talkative elementals and members of Wings Over the Worlds at Lemuria preceded Atlantis. And after Lemuria sank into the Pacific, the Atlantean culture got underway and flourished for 14,000 years before it too sank 10,500 years ago. Mystical archaeologist named James Churchward is largely responsible for the modern revival of interest in the lost continent of Mu. Early part of the century, he traveled through Central and South America, probing into ancient ruins and trying to decipher stone carvings and petroglyphs. Then he published a series of books that combined scientific, uh, scientism and seolism. I mean, he applied the scientific method to dubious fragments of evidence to support his contention that a supercontinent once existed in the Pacific. In his view, Easter Island served as a kind of factory, and the great stone heads manufactured there were shipped off to other parts of Moo. 
They poured the investigated ruins of the Pacific Island and the Great Island Mounds. Yes, there are huge man-made mounds on many of these islands. They were all part of this ancient civilization, according to uh, James Churchward. He leaned on scrambled translations of stone carvings and vague legends of undefined origin. These were mixed in with the flat statements of elementals and strange wise men, or as I wrote in one of my books, The Mystery Men. Churchward also saw evidence of traces of Mu in the ruins of the Mayan civilization in Central America and Aztec and Indian cultures further south. He compiled charts that compared the writings of Maya with the uh, hieroglyphics of Egypt, and he constructed the ancient uh, alphabet of, uh, reconstructed the ancient alphabet of Mu. Ultimately, he produced precise maps of Mu and tried to demonstrate how the mysterious ruins found in the U.S. are linked to the, this remote continent. Theologists everywhere leaped onto his bandwagon. An enormous body of Mu literature is developed, but uh, as you might guess, science remains unconvinced. Actually, there is considerable merit in Churchward's evidence, even though his conclusions and his bold statements about Mu history can be questioned. Fantastic culture of stone builders and mound builders predating modern man by centuries or even thousands of years obviously did exist at one time all over this planet. Only possible explanation for many of the Pacific ruins, such as the huge stone arch found on the coral atoll of Tongo Tabu, two upright columns weighing 70 tons each, topped by a cross piece weighing 25 tons, is that the islands must have somehow been linked together by a landmass in the distant past. Culture of this mysterious uh, land spread throughout the, the world, and an unthinkable catastrophe occurred. It altered the face of the planet, wiped out everything but the most durable construction of that doomed race. In effect, the slate was wiped clean. The ancient world was destroyed, and a new race slowly emerged. But, we're still haunted by racial memories of our planet's past. Every race and every culture is preserved and even guarded memories of this earlier epoch. Unfortunately, modern science has boxed itself in and dedicated itself to proving Darwin's theory of evolution. I would stress that it's Darwin's theory. He's never produced the proof that he promised. And other theories, uh, similar theories, which supply a rational but not necessarily valid explanation of man's origin and past. Well, at this point in time, we don't have enough time to start our next segment, so we'll do that in the next show. But um, I want to make it clear that if you investigate with an open mind some of these anomalies around the world, You'll be hard-pressed to come up with any way to explain them other than there once existed a planet-wide civilization that worked in stone. Well, until tomorrow at this time, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.